1: I think they're great places for for our students to work because everyone, I often tell people, what do you want One graduation? You, You want your potential not to be limited, right?
2: Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time.
0: Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoff, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the hard truths playbook you never got.
2: Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. If you're a regular listener, you know our focus is on power and influence, how great people navigate hard truths at work to accelerate their careers and amplify their impact without having to sell their souls in the process. Today, we're gonna look at how to amplify your impact from a different perspective. We're going to discuss how companies successfully scale or don't, and how that might shed light on how we better navigate our careers. And who better to have on this subject than the scale-up expert, one of the world's deepest and wide-ranging thinkers on the topic, the one and only Joe Haslow. Joe is obsessed, and I mean obsessed, with scaling. He's a prolific, very thoughtful, and engaging speaker on the topic. And what I'm most excited about is, as Joe said to me prior to this, my best articles are still in my head. So may this episode turn into one. Joe Haslam is professor at IE Business School in Madrid, Spain, and executive director of the OMP, that's the Owner and Manager's Scale-Up Program at IE Business School, a unique program for small and medium-sized companies that seek to scale. Joe knows this topic from multiple perspectives. He started as an entrepreneur. He founded and scaled numerous startups himself. Now invests in mentors and serves on the board of numerous others. And of course, lectures on this subject. It is a potent combination. At IE, he teaches the popular and very highly rated course, The Envy of Other Professors, Trillion Dollar Opportunities, Scale Up Your Startup, and Scale Up Yourself. On on a personal note, one of the things I most joy about IE Business School, where I also teach, is the cross-pollination of ideas. Joe was one of the first people I met. He supported and guided me as I got my footing and provoked my thinking in very powerful ways. So I was also honored and enthusiastic last year. We operate in different, but maybe today we'll find out very similar areas uh, when he read my book and endorsed it, Get Promoted. Joe, finally, 2023, I've got you on the show. Welcome to 97% Effective.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. It's It's a pleasure to be with you today.
2: Joe, you are, as I said, very prolific all over the internet. What's one thing that we can't find out about you online
1: Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, the the thing about it is that I always move forward. I, I just always look forward. Uh, and, uh, you know, I often say that the average age of a company founder is 45. And, and you know, I'm in my fifties now. And even though I've started six companies, I, I intend to start six more.
2: Mm. I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. Our discussion to start it off, what what is a simple definition of a scale up? And what's the question that that you're trying to answer,
1: sure. Well, the mystery to me, and one of the reasons that I really got into this ten years ago, is is that you know, comp- whether it's business schools or whoever it is, we talk about startups, and you know, the famous Jerry Kaplan book that sort of kicked a lot of this off, uh, and then we talk about corporations and companies, and nobody kind of talked about the thing in the middle, and. And anyone that has kids knows that you have this beautiful baby and then it suddenly turns into a teenager and then before it becomes an adult. So nobody really talked about scale ups, which are this kind of company in the middle, you know, this kind of fast growing company. Uh, And uh, that's having been in one of those myself. uh, We co-founded a company in in the dot com area that we raised 75 million in scale to 250 people. So uh, you know, scale-ups became very interesting to me, and um, if anything, I w- I'm surprised that it's taken so long. I mean, there's you still walk into rooms and you still ask people what's a scale-up, and they won't tell you. One of the kind of the debates I have is that they don't conform to rules, and I think they're great places for for our students to work because everyone. I often tell people, what do you want one graduation? You, you want your potential not to be limited, right? So in, in a summary, the answer to your question are fast-growing companies are, mm. are what we have scale-ups, companies that can get to a billion dollars in valuation in four or five years.
2: I love there's an old quote. I think it's Sheryl Sandberg who basically said, when you see a rocket ship, get on it. And I think that is a, exactly what you said, a, a brilliant place to be. I know it propelled my yeah. career as I look back on it. And so you said in a, in a previous podcast that I listened to that there's many varied reasons for success. And, and so it's hard to pinpoint, right? This one thing will work for all, but it's very clear, like why scale ups do not succeed. So, so what is the top thing, you know, if you just pointed out that, that causes failure of scale ups? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the marketing people for, for the owner up program are always kind of annoyed with me about that because that's what people want. They want direction, right? They want to say, yeah. you come, you take the course, you're told what to do, you do it. Uh, and of course, you know, life isn't like that. But I mean, this goes actually to something that Bob Sutton said. He said, look, you know, we." he said, I might give you advice, he said, but there's no guarantee that it might actually be the thing that makes a difference. He said, but I have a fairly good hang from studying organizations in what doesn't work. Mm. Uh, And that's sort of the the metaphor I use, which is to say like, look, okay, come with me and I'll tell you what we know doesn't work. Mm. And then at least you'll be starting on the starting line rather than, you know, several things back. Uh, And a classic example would be the kind of people you hire. Mm. You know, if you've someone coming from Coca-Cola, you know, they have sort of one of the best known brands in the world. They have a company that's marketing centric, you know, so to put that person into a startup to do marketing is completely inappropriate. And you still see this happen today, but there's a list of about you know thirty things that that I've established. I mean, the the book that I someday hope to get to write is the start is the scale up checklist, uh, yeah. which is you know basically uses the metaphor of a pilot taking off, and before they take off, you know they check are the flaps open, do they close, right. does the light work, you know that kind of thing, and I think that scale ups are very much. You know, this idea of experimenting, 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 and not really pressing go until your experiments are validated, but sort of slow, slow in the beginning. And you take a lot of time in the beginning, which is counterintuitive.
2: Is there another one that surprises you consistently that that people find novel or runs against their, their thinking?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, here's another one, which is, you know, this idea of like less is more, which I guess comes to us from architecture. So people sort of think that having more products gives them a better chance of, and this is the thing about scaling, which is that it's about shutting things down.
2: So I wanna shift this. There is this tension that a lot of my clients have. What's good for the company may not be good for certain individuals and and vice versa. You know, classic example, uh, someone runs something into the ground, but they get promoted or elevated because they did something. Or they're a fantastic team player, you know, exactly what we want, but they weren't vocal enough, they didn't have the right visibility, and they got passed over. How do you advise kind of good team players? How do you advise them not to become stepping stones?
1: So here's the thing, Michael. One of the things is that when you're working together on a hard problem, You just don't find assholes. So what I say about a scale up is that because the stakes are quite high, like you you generally, you know, and you're also you're working on a hard problem. I mean, that's probably the thing. And actually, I got this from from Patrick Colson in Stripe, which is he this is kind of what he says, which is to say, if you're working on hard problems, you attract good people and, and, and bad people stay away. And uh, that's kind of the the thing I say about scale ups, which is to say that very often the challenge is such that there, there just isn't time to play politics. That's always my advice to people is work on hard problems, because mm. working on hard problems attracts the right sort of people and, and attracts in a, in a collaborative sort of way. So that's the first thing, you know, if you're writing down your thing, you say work on hard problems. And, and then the, that attracts the right kind of people, and it also attracts the right kind of behavior.
2: Yeah, so I think that's an interesting point. I, I would disagree that there aren't politics, but if you are surviving, you probably do have less of it. Which also goes to this topic, which is looking at, at founders, startup founders, and how many of them do not make it through the scale-up phase. They either are not the right person or they're ousted. Why does this happen? Why do so many founders lose power or their position?
1: Yeah. So this is absolutely fascinating. Founders, by definition, are kind of edgy people. It's that kind of, you know, mania or whatever you want to call it that makes them excellent founders. But they don't manage the investors in the right way. You want to try and keep the founder of the company in, but generally the skills or their personality type that cause them to create the company in the first place is perhaps not the right uh, once the company becomes not just about them. So yeah. that's, it's a very interesting
2: problem. So bottom line, is that about founders managing the people who keep them in their seat? I mean, Zuckerberg is a great example here. He, you know, no, he really can't be ousted. You know, he's got some hard power there. And so what keeps founders, you know, what do they need to watch out for? It sounds like managing their board
1: you almost need to have a minder, you know, you almost need to have somebody who who just sort of like keeps the the founder focused on what they're good at Mm -hmm. and tells them that it's okay. Like one of the really curious things that you see among founders is that they feel as if they have to behave a certain way. One of the best advices you can give to any student is, is find out what you're good at and get even better at that rather than compensating for your weaknesses because that's kind of what a lot of the education system does it it tries to focus on your weaknesses so i say no no find out what you're good at and get even better at it so if you're a really good engineer you know don't stray away from the engineering
2: is that the idea then joe that be indispensable almost you can't be ousted or can't can't be let go
1: you need to be effective you know to use a football analogy If you put the ball in the back of the net, stop trying to be a goalkeeper. You know, just keep putting the ball in the net.
0: You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview.
2: So as you talk about leaders and CEOs, particularly as they kind of go from startup to scale up, a lot of their job is to inspire right to articulate a vision get people behind them customers to to have faith and adopt the product investors to pour in more money great people to come on board and and stay on board right there's this part of showing confidence inspiring people but we do see how certain startup founders can take this too far uh, almost in a narcissistic way deceiving people, they can become isolated, overconfident, get surrounded by yes people. How, how does how do the, the best leaders who kind of make it through the scale up navigate that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's just two things I want to say there, which is like, I mean, like you, I have a coaching practice and I, I kind of thought that it would be helping people to scale. That was sort of how it originally began with, you know, you've just taken on a round of money or something like that. Like, what does, you know, what's the checklist look like? But turns out that narcissism isn't as big a problem among founders of companies as perhaps, I think narcissism is a bigger problem with a lot of corporate CEOs, Uh, you know, which is sort of why I think a lot of scale-up organizations are quite healthy places to work with. A surprising amount of, uh, you know, people who have created unicorn companies still answer their phone. They're very accessible. They got into it to solve a problem, whereas corporate CEOs really just get into it to just make money. I mean, this is the whole point I make. Like, we're a business school and we have this whole class of companies and we hardly talk about them. And the way that they're different is almost completely unlike everything else we say about every other company.
2: You you bring up a good point here around whether narcissism exists in this class of founders. And that would be what I'd like to see the data on. I wouldn't say that all founders, uh, certainly within my data set, uh, narcissistic may be the wrong term we're using here, but certainly kind of strong personalities, strong character exists. And so my question is when you have a strong personality and character, you can take that too far where people will not want to speak up and how do you ensure, right? That that doesn't go too far back to this point of why do many founders not stay on is, is rightly so they are focused on the business and we know that's the best thing. But you can make the argument a job of Java leadership is also to keep yourself in a position or with the resources or the mandate to be able to do certain things and so I'd, I'd make that observation about maybe there, there is less attention to politics and maybe that does actually hurt certain people in that kind of scale up or founding role and, and why they they leave
1: yeah it's it's I mean like in a way like people who who sell out there's you know a huge thing that non-entrepreneurs don't understand you know which i'm increasingly hearing these people be called muggles in reference to harry Mm -hmm. potter i don't know whether i like that this (laughs) idea of magicians and muggles but anyway this idea of what they don't understand is why people serial entrepreneurs keep going back you know like if you have enough money to never Mm -hmm. have to work again surely you would never work again right but you know there's then you have to see how they just don't meet exciting people and there's you know there's this unbelievable kind of the feeling of doing something that somebody said wasn't possible, like that kind of feeling that, you you know, people, uh, serial entrepreneurs really miss that. And is that power like I, I it's a it's a kind of a, a it's power in the sense of being able to cast a spell, you know. Sure. So, yeah. again, it, it's power is a sort of a, a word for a lot of people in my world, in my scale up world what's cool is the ability to do stuff that somebody said wouldn't couldn't be done
2: that that very much fits in with the definition of power of influence of swaying people or in contested situations you know just that force of whether you want to call that charisma or being able to transmit that to others also very much takes people far and 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 influences them
1: you were going to ask me about technology as well
2: (laughs) yeah so technology which is you know what enables a lot of the companies today and one of the pieces you sent me, and I was reading kind of through the, the links and so forth, There was very interesting evidence that, you know, the human touch still matters. They did a study looking at startups and particularly as we went into COVID. And those startups, which we are knowledge workers, when they were remote, they did not do as well as when the workers were together. And so as a technologist and looking at scale ups, I wonder how you think about this kind of balance or how technology and the human touch intersect and what's important.
1: Yeah, I think our relationship with technology, um, I, I think that you don't really understand how, uh, just how powerful it is. If you want to go from 50 people to 500 people, I'm like, this is a technology conversation. You know, that's mm-hmm. what this is. Now, it's obviously going back to a people, it's people who write the code, people who manage and all of that but essentially you know to going from from um, 50 people to 500 people is about using exponential technology rather than using linear technology and that is really what scaling from 50 people to 500 people is about it's about setting up a way of using technology and then having human beings make decisions based on on information but mm. It all comes down to people, of course it does. If you go back to chess, you know the famous Gary Kasparov, and we have it again now with Go, and we have it again with DeepMind. You know, the best combination is man plus machine. It's not man or machine; it's man plus machine. It's how to use the tool properly. That's what we should be asking. Like with Chat GPT, you know, my attitude. I was asked about what am I going to do about Chat GPT, and I said any. If I ever there's no question that I ask my students for which chat GPT will give them an answer. In other words, like if the answer is chat GPT will I shouldn't be asking them the question in the first place. I mean, one of the things that I I, uh, I look at the way business schools are changing and how we can be useful to people. Uh, and it has to be much more of, of just helping them make good decisions. I mean, the information is widely available you know, your job as a professor is helping people make good decisions. And like, that's why I believe your course should be like, you know, one of the first things that we do. Uh, And it should be like a core, like a lot of people tend to approach softer courses as being Mm -hmm. like a nice to have, but I actually think it's switching in the opposite that the amount of people who can't, you know, introduce themselves properly, can't communicate well, doesn't make good decisions about who would help them, stuff like that. Those are the sort of tips that can really help people to progress in organizations. And those are the things that are in your book about, like, I'll tell you why you're not promoted, because if people don't know the thing you've done and know your value to the organization, then that's why you don't get promoted. And right. that's why business schools absolutely, you know, need to try and, uh, and need to try and work a lot more on on, on, on this kind of
2: stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm taken away from, from what you said that, particularly scale-ups, that the technology is the enabling factor. And and if we can really harness technology and better understand it, that is what helps us scale, but it's this, still this glue of people and how we make decisions or relate to each other. Jo- Joe, we've covered a ton of areas. Is there one thing as we kind of come to an end here that's on your mind or one important question that I didn't ask or didn't push back on you, that that I should have.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I, I just th- my thing to you, Michael, is is that you have come across power and helping people to get promoted. Like the value you give to people, like I don't think even you realize it because you're right inside in it, you know. Mm. But but you know, I often tell people, which is to say, like. You know, people often you know don't volunteer for things. I see it among my own kids. My kids are my kids, and they volunteer for everything and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I said, like you know, either you learn to uh, stand up for yourself, or just watch other people take credit for your accomplishments, and Mm -hmm. that's going to make you feel terrible. You know, so I think that I think what you've done, uh, you know, is incredibly um, you know like it's incredibly powerful. The value that you give to people is enormous. When I help people to get rich, you know, and I help people to, you know, I, but I don't think perhaps the the impact on their lives, uh, I just hope you appreciate that because so many people in organizations have, you know, put in the hard yards and don't get the credit. And like yeah. one or two pieces of advice you can give them, you know, they become unhappy people. And that then leads, you know, to. An unhappy person creates another unhappy person, creates another unhappy person, and uh, so I, I think that um, you know the 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 value that you bring in terms of getting people to get what they deserve and to get that promotion and to help the the good people win and the bad people get defeated. You know, I just want to like pay tribute to you for for what you've done. Sometimes in business, all we do is help people get rich. And I think that you have a value beyond that. So it hadn't occurred to me to say that, but as we've talked, I wanted to say that.
2: Thank you. And, and I mean, at a base, we are talking about here about you know agency and uh, people like you said standing up for themselves, assertiveness, and I think it's a it's a powerful combination, right? People who have that and they're exposed to much of your work here around scale ups. There's a whole part here around scaling your impact that I think matters even more. Two people. Half
1: of my coaching practice are people who have the money to do anything they want and they're they're very unhappy.
2: Joe, you have always been extremely helpful and generous with your time, which I think has also expanded your network and has really amplified the work you do. So Joe, I want to thank you for our conversation here on the podcast. What is the best way for people to reach you?
1: Well, well, Twitter is alive, and it's just about alive. I'm at Joe Has uh, J-O-E-H-A-S. But uh, if you Google me, if you, Joe Has in my business school, my, na- my email comes up and still get a lot of email and uh, I'm still very happy to, to reply to people.
2: Yeah, great. Thank you, Joe.
1: It's been a pleasure, Michael. All the best.
0: Thanks for listening to 97% Effective where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. W-E-N-D-E-R-O-T-H dot At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership.